0: Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we invited Daniel Bessner onto the show. Danny is Joff Hanauer Honors Professor in Western Civilization at the University of Washington, the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speer, and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, a contributing editor at Jacobin, co-host of the American Prestige podcast, and a lively leftist polemicist on Twitter. It was quite the episode. As expected, we agreed on very little between the three of us. The discussion is split into two parts, become a paying subscriber to hear Shadi and Danny really go at it over the role of democracy in foreign policy, and hear me press Danny about what he really is trying to achieve. If you're not a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to the whole thing in one file. On to the show.
1: So one of the reasons I'm excited about this is because, um, Danny, we've, um, I feel like you're my Twitter friend and we've like DM'd over the years and I feel like I know you, but it turns out I don't know you and I've never met you in person. So, I mean, that's the first thing. (laughs) And I know that you're very funny on Twitter. So I feel like, oh, I like, I like his vibe on Twitter and like his tweets make me laugh. Um, so there's that. But then I realized I don't really have a great sense of where you stand on on certain issues. I mean, obviously, you know, you're on the left um, and uh, that's clear. And actually, I don't know if you remember this, but we were both involved um, in the Bernie campaign. And I think the first time I actually kind of registered Daniel Bessner as as a sort of as a name and uh, maybe a metaphor for. Uh, was That's on when you some- know
2: you've made it, when you become a metaphor.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was on a, an email thread as part of some of the Bernie stuff. And um, yeah, anyway, so um, it, it's interesting. And I, I bring that up because people don't really understand why I supported Bernie. And I think mm-hmm. that as time has gone on, even sometimes I don't fully understand why I supported Bernie. And I think what's clear, in terms of like reading some of your recent work on, especially in regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think that I've diverged considerably from where the left is or has been any number of ways. So I'm excited to actually unpack w- what is the root of that divergence, let's say. And um, sure. yeah, yeah, so, uh, and Maybe I, I guess, I mean, Shadi,
2: just to, to jump in very quickly, I think it's important to, perhaps at the beginning of our discussion, just mention, like, what is the left? And it's difficult to really define that in the United States because there really isn't an organized left like there there has been historically in this country or certainly in Europe. So oftentimes we're talking about kind of individual speakers or thinkers like myself. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that because right now the left is pretty inchoate. Um, and that's the moment uh, we're at in terms of our institutional and organizational uh, power. So I just want to say I'm not like speaking on behalf necessarily of any organization, but <laughs> in a reflection of the time, sort of a, a disembodied, free-floating intellectual.
3: <laughs> a, a metaphor, <laughs> no, that, as Shadi put it.
1: <laughs> indeed. And that's good it's for a you. A walking <laughs> metaphor. And that's good for you to to clarify. And I, and I, I don't want to, and I, I really do mean this. I think that our listeners should know that you are, at least from my perspective, one of the most um, important and influential young left intellectuals talking about foreign policy today. So anyone who wants to engage in these debates, you know, from my perspective, there's two names in the relatively younger crowd. I actually don't know how old you are, but I assume that we're both millennials. Demir sadly is not a millennial. (laughs) He's an older person. (laughs)
0: Grizzled Gen Z or something. I was born in
2: 84, yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I was born in 83. So I had that sense that we're of the same generation, the generation that sort of came to fruition after 9-11. 9-11 happened my freshman year of undergrad and and so on. But those two names are basically you and, and Samuel Moyne, who I think are just essential reading when it comes to thinking about what a progressive foreign policy might look like. Um, So that's the nice thing <laughs> that I can say. <laughs> no, no, I mean, um, but how about this? Maybe no, just well, to kind that's, of, that's um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to orient us, orient our listeners, because they may not be aware. If you had to just sort of articulate your vision and framework on U.S. foreign policy, especially now in light of recent developments, this is, you know, in some ways I would say a hinge point, or at least for some people it is. I mean, I've I've become more hawkish since and I was already kind of hawkish um, since, you know, since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I think some people are moving in that direction. But it seems to me that you're kind of holding the fort and saying that, hey, there is still a kind of leftist anti imperialist um, position that is moral and principled and worth defending. So maybe just lay it out where where you stand now um, and how you're thinking about these different topics.
2: Sure, I'll try to do um, my best, and, and then we can dive into specific topics yep. as you guys want. But essentially, um, I, I try to adopt a historically informed approach to, to U.S. foreign policy, and particularly the era of uh, American hegemony that began after World War II, uh, when the United States, um, I think, really emerged as the world's uh, superpower. Um, I think in retrospect, we could see at the time that it, it was far more powerful than the Soviet Union in a lot of different metrics, and we could talk about that. But essentially, the United States, since World War II, has pursued a strategy that the um, It has been termed armed primacy, uh, which simply means that the United States argues that both American prosperity and global peace and prosperity depend on it being the military hegemon. Uh, depend on it having you know the hundreds of bases uh overseas bases depends on it having uh, a huge defense budget depends on it having a permanently mobilized society that's geared toward war which wasn't the case before world war ii and if you actually go back to the late 1940s and read what a lot of elites were saying they were basically making the case for this type of permanent mobilization that that us three have lived with our entire lives um And based on a historical reading of what primacy has actually meant for the world, you know, the various coups, the various wars, both uh, before and after the Cold War ended, um, I think that U.S. uh, military hegemony has not been on balance a great thing, uh, particularly when we move our gaze outside what I call the core, the North Atlantic core of effectively Western Europe and the United States and and Canada. But when you move toward the global south, I think you see that that dollar hegemony, U.S. military hegemony hasn't been that good uh, for most people uh, and and therefore uh, the, the type of world i want to build and i guess philosophically i'm a secular humanist i think all human lives are of equal value regardless of what your citizenship is i will depend on the united states first restraining its power you know or um associated with the quincy institute for responsible statecraft which embraces restraint but but ultimately reducing its power uh and uh, allowing other nations to basically do what they want in a more free way. I think that the historical argument in favor of this is pretty clear. um, And that I think it would be on balance better for the world, particularly as nation state based problems that really did define the 19th and 20th centuries recede into the past and more global transnational international problems, whatever you want to call them, like climate, pandemics, inequality come to the fore. Um, And if you are talking about current politics, I think um, ukraine and the Russian invasion of ukraine is is a gift to the american military industrial complex uh, where it essentially allows a type of return to cold war logic a, col- a return to uh, a securitized and militarized logic of America sending arms abroad uh, of people making a lot of money off of these arms of an entire techno-scientific structure in Washington, D.C., basically getting itself into its former comfortable position of advocating for the U.S. to, quote-unquote, do something abroad. Um, And so what I try to do is argue and militate against that, that on balance, even if there are difficult short-term decisions to be made, it would be better for most people, both in this country and the world, if the United States did far less abroad.
1: Okay, okay, that's good. To start, um, and just to kind of put my cards on the table, because I'll, I'll assume that not all listeners will be super familiar with me, especially since some of your dedicated fans and and followers may decide to tune in. So just just to be clear, um, so I don't I don't want to presume that you've you've um, read everything I've written, but just so people know, I wrote a piece in the Atlantic a couple of weeks after the Ukraine invasion started with the somewhat suggestive title there are many things worse than american power where i basically make the case that american power on balance is better than the alternative so i think there's there's obviously a key key divergence there and maybe to start along that path. And I should also say, um, and, you know, Danny, you might not like this, so please don't hold it against me from like a moral perspective that I I might haven't put out the full argument, but I have definitely said on podcasts and tweeted that I am now open to increasing our military budget where I wouldn't have been previously. In that sense, I've been, quote, unquote, radicalized. So perhaps I'm part of the very problem that you're Pointing to that, um, I'm sort of feeding into what might become, you know, an increase in the, the the military-industrial complex, the return of that kind of mentality, and so on. Um, so on on this question of American power, and and Demir, also feel free to jump jump in here. Um, so I mean, Demir maybe doesn't. <laughs> I don't want to speak for Demir. Demir maybe isn't well, as concerned.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess. I guess if we're like laying out our, our priors, I mean, I I, yes. I, I, I think it's it's probably just as well that I say, um, you know, I I anticipate that this conversation will be you guys talking about what is good, um, and I'm and I'm less worried about that. And I, 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 Danny, I sort of want to talk to you about that, about the priors and how that works out, uh, because I don't know. Sure. I, I guess I, I I come at it from a you know, much more Slavic and tragic sort of view, and I, you know, yes, be, would be keen course. to talk. Where, where
2: you stand is where you sit. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I mean, you know, I, I think there's a there's a conversation to be had there as well. Uh, but Shadi, go ahead, make your point about about uh, about the good in any case here and your your arguments. because yeah, I think so there's I a think, lot to do there.
1: So I think where we where we do overlap, and also we had um, Glenn Greenwald on, um, you know, at the start of at the start of the war as well. And that was interesting. But I respect Glenn, and that's why we've had him on the show twice um, to some people's um, dismay. <laughs> but um, so where I overlap with Glenn, and and I think you as well, is um, I think that the US has a pretty horrific record in its foreign policy, particularly as it relates to the Middle East. And, um, you know, as someone- yeah, that's America where my- hasn't
2: been so great either. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, that is true. So I was about to say, too, that during the Cold War, obviously, in terms of trying to overthrow various regimes and Chile being. Or NAFTA.
2: NAFTA hasn't been so kind to Latin America either. That's post Cold war.
1: Okay, uh, so I don't.
2: (laughs) I'll let you go. I'll let you go. Sorry.
1: No, but you lost me a little bit there. So I'm not as economically oriented. And we can get to that because I think that's a big part of your argument. I'm sort of agnostic on things like NAFTA and I don't claim to be an expert one way or the other. But um, yeah, so here's what I would say. We've done a lot of bad things in the Middle East, in Latin America, in a particular period, and to some degrees to this very day. And maybe that's also an issue of debate. But um, but you say, so I'll, I'll just bring up something that you said in your conversation with Glenn Lowry, which we'll include a link to. It's very, very interesting. And I, I love your dialogues with Glenn on his podcast. It's just a model of, principle disagreement and laying out one's priors and so forth. But one maybe more specific point is you said that Russia probably wouldn't have invaded Ukraine in the early 2000s or in the 1990s. It was only willing and able to invade Ukraine because US power has declined in relative terms. And that, to me, in a very in a very obvious way, suggests that the decline of American power isn't necessarily good. If America hadn't been declining, Russia wouldn't have invaded, if I understand your argument correctly. But maybe we can just start with that, because that's a very specific illustration of how adversaries are emboldened when they see American weakness. And then they end up doing terrible things and committing atrocities, as we are seeing in Ukraine.
2: Yeah. um, And and of course, I would never deny those atrocities or the brutality and um, awfulness of of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. um, Just to make that clear. (laughs) So I guess uh, you have to make things like that clear. My my simple point was that I I don't think um, an era of incredible American power, uh, the type of thing that existed in the 1990s where the G7 controlled. I believe this statistic is something like 66 or 67% of world GDP. Um, I think it's now something around 30%. It's not, maybe those precise numbers aren't right, but the trend is, is something like that. Um, no, I don't think Putin would have invaded Russia. So there's a couple of things that I would say to, to I, Ukraine, I say to invaded West Ukraine. Today. Oh, yeah, sorry. I don't think Putin. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Putin would have invaded uh, Ukraine. Russia would have invaded Ukraine. Uh, And I think there's a couple of things I would say. Um, First is that there's just the empirical question of whether the type of power that the United States had in 1945 and 1991 is ever going to be seen again in world history. I would argue that those were very unique circumstances in 1945, effectively the most developed countries, Um, had been ruined in war, and in 1991, the United States' closest peer competitor effectively disappeared from the scene overnight, uh, allowing the United States to have an enormous amount of power that that i don't think we'll see something like that happen happen again in the future in the near future in the predictable future roughly predictable nothing's predictable but i think everyone i hope everyone will take what i mean in in the future so there's that just that i don't think it's really possible again so in some sense i view that argument as tilting at windmills. um but again it also depends on what um time frame you're adopting so if If you want to make an argument that the united states should intervene in every atrocity that happens at every moment around the world to prevent short-term consequences um i i understand that i I see the appeal of that morally but one could i think make an equally moral and ethical claim that if you take a more medium or long-term perspective that the type of world that we need to be building toward will not be organized around the singular hegemonic power that you just said, has done a lot of uh, bad in the past, but will necessarily be um, more multilateral and more organized around um, cooperation, uh, even with states that American policymakers might not like, with, of course, the caveat that um, American policymakers have been quite fine with aligning with Saudi Arabia or Egypt or other non-democratic or anti-democratic countries when it it served their perceived interests. Everyone knows hypocrisy is not a particularly interesting argument, but it is there. So that's effectively how I would answer that, that in the short term, I think the the reduction of American power will, like you said, resulted in... Really awful things, but you also have to take other perspectives when you're making policy. Particularly given the light that I think that um, many Americans and Shadi, you could tell me if I'm wrong, are basically in hoc to the progressive era fantasy, literally the turn of the 20th century. That you'll be able to manage politics, manage international relations like it's a great game of risk. And I would just say, as the historicist, you're never able to manage any of these things. These things always have unpredictable consequences. People always point to the you know the funding of the Jadin in the 1980s etc cetera, etc cetera. this is something that's repeated over and over again so i think the the the, the force that is made in, in favor of you know sending arms to ukraine and constantly increasing military budgets and, for ukraine and, and military aid um don't take account of the criticisms that i just made in really any way shape or form but which is typical it's a dc you know everyone's worried about tomorrow not not 20 years from now but Dan- danny that's <laughs> a, you know i i I, I
3: think it's a great answer. Uh, I first I, I'll say I agree that you know uh, we we were no longer in the unipolar moment, um, and it's good to even think of the you know even even in 1945 uh, it was a kind of unipolar moment until the Soviets caught up. Though again, debatable how much they caught up. Did they though? No, no. no again, I'll I'll up? even I'll <laughs> grant you that one. Though there's I think that there's a lot of good history and, and stuff to talk about. Perceptions and how likely that was, you know. I don't know. I I was just actually, oddly enough, I I I not even in preparation for our interview, I was on the plane from Berlin reading uh, um, uh, Jack Snyder's book about how empires mis uh, misjudge and and mis, misunderstand threats. So you know, I mean, it's on my mind. But let's just let's just assume that you know, at least there was a unipolar moment before uh, the elites really sort of woke up to what was perceived as you know the the rising threat. Um, but, but what's interesting there in, in how you framed your response, and maybe this will help us sort of start unpacking some of where you're coming from, um, you have an idea of building a better world. Um, and uh, the building of the better world happens through restraint, as you said, and the rest of that. And you're trying to build a world that is multilateral and based on cooperation. Um, how does it? what are, what are the, some of the antecedents that you need for cooperation to spring up in the world beyond just american disarmament um basically uh will it arise normally because rational actors will it arise normally because democracy and democratic peace theory uh is there a trend towards democratization that america is hampering by being more active and basically democracies would emerge more if we did less is that part of the underlying theory of this, like, building cooperation in one, the future? One question. What do you mean
2: by democracy voting?
3: No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, I, I didn't mean that. I meant I meant basically, I was sort of giving you what I was trying to brainstorm, what you meant by cooperation in the world. Will it come out from just states, be they democratic or non-democratic, uh, rationally behaving and and finding ways for institutions to, co- to cooperate? Or is it that... Uh, there's a process of democratization that will overcome the world and then democracies are better able to cooperate. I, I, I don't understand this I, I notion mean, of a cooperative think, world.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, so I would ask you what your priors are, because it sounds to me like your priors are realism. Um, and sort of, do you have a degree in political science?
3: No, I'm a total dilettante. I have a, I have a master's in, you know, something politically science-y, but no, I don't have a I don't have degree. Right, a, right. So, I mean, degree. I
2: would just say that a lot of, I mean, like, I, I, I would say that just fundamentally it sounds like a lot of the categories you're working with are, are these categories that were developed between the 1930s and the 1960s to explain international relations. Sure. And they assume things like states are going to naturally expand and, and that states will naturally fill power vacuums and every state is ultimately bent on world hegemony because i think people literally the people who developed how we think about international relations people like hans Morgenthau, you know people like arnold wolfers people like john hertz were essentially universalizing um, the experience in particular of the 1930s and the first half of the 20th century making them laws of international relations um so i would just say that a, a lot of the ways we talk about international relations i just fundamentally think we have to adopt a more historical approach to them and that like the the power vacuum is, I think, a very clear one. The idea that like the Mersheimer idea that states mechanistically expand because everyone's concerned with survival is, I think, a historical. Um, so I, I don't have like a one, two, three step plan. But I guess my theory of the case is that you not, that things are better worked out by people who actually have stakes in the regions in which they are um, so that, you know, people are best uh, things are best worked out by people countries that are actually in east asia or actually in latin america or actually in the middle east and when you have a power an imperial power like the united states coming in from outside it prevents us effectively organic developments on the ground to proceed as they do i don't have a theory of democratization Mm -hmm. i would also question like what do you actually mean by democracy because i would say in the united states we have a very minimal understanding of what democracy is which again emerges from a political theory that is actually quite skeptical of public opinion and we have actually created a state in this country like the national security state that effectively prevents ordinary people from actually exerting an influence on politics so i certainly don't have a theory of democratization but i guess i do have a philosophy where countries should be able to decide um what type of political regime they want to live under i mean and I- it shouldn't be up to the united states to decide whether that <laughs> is or is not legitimate
3: well so you know i mean again I'll, I'll i'll let Shadi handle the democracy stuff i am i am deeply agnostic about it i'm not like a a democracy person, I was just sort of teeing it up there for Shadi to go at it with you. But, uh, you know, and yes, I am generally sort of a realist, but unlike a restrainer, I'm much more of an offensive realist is really when it comes down to all of this. So, you know, yeah, you you, you nailed me pretty quickly and easily on that. But the question is then on the localism, um, you know... <sighs> And I again, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of this approach that you champion of, of going at these things historically. But the question always becomes in any situation compared to what, and as you said, in, in, under what time frame. So you know, take, yeah, sure. take, so Ucra- I think- take Ukraine for example. Let me just push you on that uh-huh. because it's a it's a sure. you know it's a localized conflict. It's actually a, a conflict that goes back uh, you know uh, to the time of the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Empire sure, and, to the ninth century. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you can you can take it all the way back and and, and all sorts of uh contingencies and and local things and you know war is one of these things that that persists in in the settling of these sorts of things so again it's it's my 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 press to you is is maybe you're not optimistic maybe i just misread when you say build a better world around cooperation but where's this where's that come from again again maybe you don't have to have a full theory of it but if I scope out and try and look out, you know, the grander sweep of history doesn't necessarily fill me with any kind of optimism with a lack so of what have people
2: fought over? Hmm. What have people fought over traditionally? Land, the, women. Land. <laughs> I think less so. Uh, the, uh, so I would say that do Religion, ideology. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would say that's usually not a the major cause, but that reveals my Marxism. I would say that's usually a superstructural cause sometimes- There are, I mean, let's like, so let's go back to like the Crusades, right? That's like the classic, like ideology drives war thing. I mean, I I think there's been a lot of compelling scholarship to argue that it actually had to do with like land distribution and things along those lines. So I guess my also first principle is I don't think ideology is actually a crucial driver of, of war, like fundamentally it is a, it is in one of the factors in there, but you know, historians have to rank causal hierarchies. I, I would not generally put it at the top. I don't think that's why the United States fought the cold war. For instance i think that was far more about american uh the search for american primacy um but i would say and and you know this is this is something that is still being worked out in 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 discussions like this is i don't think people need to fight over land in quite the same way as a whole i'm not saying that this will never happen but i don't think that wealth and things like that are as linked to land because of things like the green revolution which essentially allowed us to pack a ton of calories into food you know i think people fought over things like that i think you'll see a lot of war right now due to climate change and access over water resources you're going to see a lot of that but then then the argument is then, then why are we talking about ukraine when we should be talking about this global system so i i would say that the reasons that people go to war um even though there are historical you know trends absolutely is that the experience of industrialization is fundamentally different than like what the Delian League was doing in Thucydides or something like that. And we need to take a more historical approach, not only in examining antecedents, but in examining what changed. So both continuities and change.
1: Mm. Okay. So, well first of all, I do appreciate Danny that you basically just called out Demir for reading dead old white men who were alive from 1930 to 1960. That's
0: all I do. These are the people I study. I <laughs>
2: yeah. mean, I know I know them better than anything. I've read everything these people have ever written and they're brilliant. You wrote a
1: book about but one they,
2: of them. I wrote a book about one of them. But they're, the, the 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 universalizing of the 1930s is just what has happened in American IR thinking and is just not accurate. China is not Nazi Germany. The Soviet Union was not Nazi Germany.
1: Uh, interesting. Okay, we're going to have to unpack that too. I'm going to add that to our list. This okay. list is growing, Shoddy. We're going to be here for <laughs> weeks. Go on. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try my best to get to the what I think is maybe part of the heart of the matter. Um, well, first of all, I should say that um, it's interesting that you take issue with a minimalistic conception of democracy. I mean, that's very much my position and I have a book coming out where I basically lay out democratic, what I call democratic minimalism as an organizing principle for our foreign policy. Um, But that's a that's a different story. And maybe that's time. That's a subject for another debate. But so, okay, I think so. The reason that I supported Bernie and you mentioned Egypt and Saudi Arabia was because You know, because of similar concerns about our, you know, our conduct in the global south and how we support authoritarian regimes, so on and so forth. But I think that you can start from that premise and come to two different conclusions. I think your conclusion is to say that it's better for the U.S. to just stop being involved, to stop intervening, because wherever we do, we make things worse. The empirical historical record suggests that, you know, that that's that tends to be what happens. Right. Right. My position, I think I come to the a somewhat different conclusion, which is that, yes, we have done all these bad things. My proposal or my quote unquote solution, it's not really a solution per se, but it would be better to say, well, American power is a fact. We're not really likely to get to a point in the foreseeable future where leftist restrainers um control u.s policy so u.s power is still going to be wielded regardless of what we want i would much rather wield that power in the service of our ideals and close the gap between our rhetoric and our actual policy so in other words i would like us to get aggressive with countries like saudi arabia and egypt and use our leverage and so for example the fact that Saudi Arabia's military can't run without U.S. logistical support, maintenance, spare parts and so forth. I would like us to basically say to the Saudis, listen, if you want to continue getting advanced weaponry from the U.S., if you want to continue having this U.S. security umbrella, then you have to get your shit together and stop and stop exacerbating a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen stop supporting um, authoritarian regimes across the region um, and the list is actually why not quite just not give them the weapons that. well so but if we're but if we're giving yeah I, I'm actually fine with that but there has to be a reason that we're not giving so we're currently giving them these weapons right I would like to tell them like we're not feeling comfortable with this relationship you're doing a lot of terrible things with the weaponry that we give you so we have to reassess our relationship and this is these are the benchmarks that are important to us some of them have to do with our values And the fact that Saudi Arabia is working against American values throughout the Middle East and beyond. And also, I would argue against our interests. I mean, when when the Saudi crown prince kidnaps a Lebanese prime minister, I would like to humbly suggest that that is not just against our values, but also against. American strategic interest in the Middle East. Because I don't think it's realistic to go from where we are now to completely cutting off all military support. There are steps in between. and but, but I why? Think that if I mean, we, we did have, leverage- have an
2: SEC. <laughs> we didn't have an SEC in 1931. We had one in 1933. I, I don't know. I just don't buy this realism argument. That's just for, I mean, no, but- I, I don't have to make a career in D.C. So, like, I think that's a lot of It's like the, the, this sort of career incentives of Washington, D.C., force one to to make arguments about realism. But everything's realistic. We control our own but, history. But,
1: OK, but I'm definitely I'm the last thing I am is a realist. Like, I'm very much an and, I mean, uh, like, I'm kind of like an ideologue on foreign policy. So let me just so I basically think that we should be using our leverage with Saudi Arabia to punish them if they don't open up their political system, if they don't if they don't stop doing things that are morally abhorrent. And I don't think a realist would feel very sympathetic to this idea of let's I I wasn't using realism
2: in the IR sense. I was using realism in in just like the common sense, like (laughs) who decides what's politically real. I mean, it seems like very easy not to give Saudi weapons, yeah. That seems like a very easy thing, unless you don't want the military industrial complex to be pissed off. And then we get into a discussion of the American political economy. (laughs)
1: I mean, okay, okay. Well, here's
3: let me let me let me frame it a different way because I think it's a it's a good point, Shadi. Like, why do we need to have any influence in the Middle East? Why not just be like, you get no weapons, go fend for yourself, Saudis? What are the interests? We don't
2: need to be influenced in the Middle East. We should absolutely have spent the last seventy years investing in alternative energy. That's the best Middle Eastern policy.
1: Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I don't see any plausible scenario where the U.S. decides to basically stop everything it has been doing in the Middle East because there are interests that are implicated and and um, you could say whether the same we about agree slavery
2: or the New Deal or any other huge shift in America. America is actually interesting because more more than other North Atlantic countries, we actually do make gigantic shifts. It's like, oh, now there, there's no welfare state. Now there's a welfare state we had slavery. Now we don't have slavery. I think that's actually unique to America. Other countries are a bit different. But like, if if you start making it realistic and treating it like it's realistic, in the common sense sense of the term, I don't see why we just need to stop, we could just stop giving them weapons. What the hell do we need to give Saudi Arabia? OK, weapons? but you
1: no. would need you would need to have a con- you would need Congress to be on board with that. I just don't see how that happens in terms of the so, legislative process. Right, so then we process. get to the
2: domestic political economy. Right. And, th- and then this is the whole problem. This is like the, the inequality is engendered by a capitalist nation state. And then I agree. Ultimately, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. But like, foreign policy is actually one of the areas where there's not that much domestic interest in it. There's, I mean, there's not that much public interest in it. There's a ton of well, domestic interests that are making money off of things that want things to stay the same. So, but so then th- now we're getting okay, into so, questions about political economy.
1: Okay, so let me let yeah. So point taken. Let me so let me make the argument a little bit differently then. If we first of all, I do think that we have um, a moral interest in the Middle East to help um, Arab countries become less authoritarian and more democratic. What does that mean, because,
2: though? I mean, this is these categories what? are so historic. I mean, like the, the very category well, of authority that's created in the Jim Crow um, United States. I mean, it's just so I don't, as a historian, it's just so silly okay, to, me to treat. These but it's a continuum. We we. Things.
1: We can make determinations about countries becoming somewhat more democratic or somewhat more authoritarian. So what about our mass
2: incarceration? What about mass incarceration in the United States?
1: No, no, I'm talking about Arab countries. Sorry. I I was just talking about, like, for example, like Egypt during the Arab Spring, when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power through free elections, Egypt had become somewhat more democratic than what it previously was. Whatever you think about. the Muslim voting or or representation, accountability. Um, The fact that people could actually express their views publicly without fear of government persecution, for the most part, at least. I mean, in, in some sense, it was the golden age of peaceful intellectual combat. It was very frightening for a lot of status quo elites because people were actually expressing their views openly for the first time in modern Egyptian history. So the fact that you had this vibrant intellectual and political scene where people were competing and putting out their ideas from far left to far right, um, and people Why were is able that in to American prote- Well, because if we as Americans believe in democracy and that believe that democracy is but we better, we clearly in the long-
2: don't. I mean, any, <laughs> any like glance well, I, at history shows we don't give a shit about that. I oh, mean, come on, well, I mean like overthrowing a million countries, funding all these anti-democratic movements around the world. I mean, that's just not something that's just not real. It's not something no, but as, okay, but shit about
1: me as an individual American. And I know many other Americans who share this view. We do think that our ideals should be reflected to some degree in our foreign policy. We don't live up to those ideas. Who defines necessarily what the American inter- ideal
2: is, though? Who defines what an american who what gives that what gives basically people in the military intellectual complex the legitimacy decide what an american ideal is or the well, i mean i disappointed by politicians
3: but danny you have a theory okay, of well, this you have a ad- theory of this I, in one of the articles uh i don't know if it was in the was it in your review of the moyne book or maybe it was on 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 the substack uh that sometimes you you write on uh you make it you you say that you yourself uh approach these questions uh you know that you maybe instrumentalize and maybe with uh, with with a bit of a scare quote, you do talk about interest and you feel like there is a politics here. And you think that even though you despair of the fact that the American people uh, end up being more selfish uh, on these things and aren't moved by, you know, global sort of concerns, they're not uh, perhaps uh, as, I don't know, uh, they don't share your your view of the equal worth of every human life they they value their citizens more than others but you feel like there's a a process there of of convincing presumably right
2: you mean like the dewey and educationist approach
3: well no you're personal but yeah sure dewey and educationist approach but you yourself seem to have laid out uh your own approach to this i mean how do you conceive of your role politically in domestic political economy what's your role as an academic are you just a critic or are you moving the needle somehow Towards your set of values and
2: educating. Well, I would say, okay. Well, well, I would say like the big problem that I confront in in the domestic sphere is this accretion of institutions that have become the American state, um, and which you know everyone knows about the Senate everyone knows about the Supreme Court. I mean, these are fundamentally anti-democratic minoritarian institutions. But besides that, I think when we're talking about the creation of foreign policy, we've essentially created organizations like the National Security Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, the White House itself has increasingly centralized foreign policy, literally in the White House itself, in addition to like the, 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 the plethora of think tanks that in which people cycle in and out of government. So I just think like, in, in any substantive sense, American foreign policy making is not democratic, I and mean, most American policy making isn't democratic at all, uh, at all. I mean, look at the response to the George Floyd protest. Uh, how many police departments have been defunded? Oh, wait, they've all been refunded or um, in, in, increased funding. So, I would say when we're talking about like spreading democracy around the world, it, it's almost absurd to, to do that when we have the actual country we actually live in right
1: now. Okay. Okay, but. Is- A couple things. I mean, so, for example, on not to get sidetracked, but on defunding the police, just so I can understand what you mean by democratic a little bit more. It seems from all the survey research that I've seen that a majority of Americans on the national level, but also in specific localities or states don't actually support defunding the police so there is a kind I, we of we shouldn't
2: get into this because this okay, is like now okay. we're talking about survey questions and how oh, okay, it's fair, asked who answers enough. survey questions and just okay. i'm skeptical of, of that entire methodology to say the least
1: <laughs> okay okay fair enough so we, we, we don't have to delve into that um so just to clarify like where i'm coming from because you said like who decides these things I, first of all, don't consider myself part of the military policy complex, the, the the prospect that a Biden administration would consider someone like me for a position. It's never something that, as far as I can tell, is or will be plausible. And um, and also the fact that I didn't care enough about that to kind of be part of one of the Biden working groups, even after you know, so I, yeah, I, supported I Bernie. said, no,
2: thanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I supported Bernie knowing that like, I I had no, I had no um, thought that he would actually have a chance of winning. So when it came close to him winning the primary, I think a lot of us were like, Oh my God, wait, this might actually happen. But anyway, um, so I, I'm, I'm someone, I'm ultimately only responsible for myself. So when I, I know that a lot of americans don't Smoking share. like a true
2: american <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: well look i want like i'm i write and i speak about these topics in public and i realize no, that i'm, I'm, I'm in just a minority. <laughs> oh i know i know i can't talk. but you know i'm i'm in the minority in the sense that my side lost the debate about democracy promotion in the middle east we turned away from that first in the bush administration after there was like one year of like a half-hearted freedom agenda then we kind of went right back to supporting authoritarian regimes. Obama was vaguely open to some of these ideas for 6 months in 2011, then he went back to supporting authoritarian regimes. Biden doesn't even give a shit when it comes to the Middle East, so on and so forth. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not representing any kind of like national movement, but I do I do want my view of a moral interest, of a moral commitment of trying to help Arabs and Muslims live freer lives, that they have at least some say in their own destinies, that they're not forced to fight on two fronts. Because right now, if you're an Egyptian and you want to have more political openness in, a, in, a, in any kind of minimal sense, you have to fight not only against your own regime, but against the US that's supporting your regime and helping your regime stay entrenched for God knows how long. Um, and, and, and just on the point of like, let's say Saudi, why don't we just cut aid to Egypt and then get out? Why don't we stop giving weapons to Saudi Arabia and get out? Well, the risk there is that if we actually did do that, it wouldn't actually help Saudi Arabia become more politically open or even somewhat vaguely more democratic. They would continue being authoritarian and then they would get... They would fill the gap by getting support from China, Russia, whatever it might be. Um, so if we're going to withdraw or threaten to withdraw support or withdraw weaponry, let's at least use that leverage to push them in the right direction because if we just if we just get out completely and there's no, and there's nothing beyond that, there's no strategy, then Saudi Arabia is still going to be brutal to its own people. So if the goal is to actually get, Um, Saudi Arabia to be less repressive towards its own citizens, or we can say the same for Egypt, Jordan, you know, the whole list, actually, because they're actually we're talking about most of the countries in the Middle East here. Then um, then I think we have to be, quote unquote, realistic because I actually want to see policy change. I actually want to see people's lives get better.
2: Well, I mean, if that's the case, and why not focus on redistributing wealth and power from the global north to the global south? That's far more likely to engender the sorts of changes that you're speaking of than focusing on basically, I guess, freedom of speech, which will make intellectuals' lives better. I absolutely agree. But if we're talking about the masses of people, I mean, it's just like the, since the colonial era, the global north has just dominated and, and rapaciously extracted from the global south. So to me, if that's your genuine goal, then I feel like there's better ways to attack it.
1: Okay, but Much if you um... – But the only way the only way people. So let's say we're talking about any kind of polity. I mean, if Egyptians are unhappy with X, Y or Z issues, democracy, if at least if it's if there are free and fair elections, gives them a chance to vote in people who have a different view on these fundamental questions, so I would, I would. But that's posit- not how it
2: works. I mean, I mean, that's just not how 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 history works. I mean, I think history has shown anything is that like the very minimal American understanding of democracy has actually led to the erosion of what what I would say is more genuine democracy, social democracy, economic democracy, things like that that allow people to live to, to live better lives. I mean, it's in fact, if we're talking about this country, it's only in the 1930s, uh, in the face of, of of fascism abroad, that American intellectuals actually actually define democracy down to just mean voting. And I would see the history of the last 100 years has just shown how that very, you know, jaundiced, if you will, uh, uh, definition of democracy does not actually lead to the sorts of things that that you want very clearly. It's not even a question.
1: Okay. To be clear, I'm not just saying, I'm not only talking about elections. I'm talking about voice, accountability, responsiveness, representation. The idea that people should have a right to recourse if things in their country are going bad or terribly, that they can actually have avenues to express their grievances and dissatisfaction and then articulate Do you think those we and have organize accordingly. Do you, what, you think we have that here? Um, not in any kind of perfect or ideal sense, but
2: not even in yes, a close sense. I mean, study after study shows that there's absolutely no connection between public opinion and elite policy when elite policy and capitalist interests disagree with public opinion. We don't even have that here oh uh, i think well, that's somewhat that's the nature of modernity a little bit right when you have these like a massive states what winds up happening is you wind up having basically accruing an elite governing class and a largely disenfranchised public that's what we have here okay
3: but so danny you know i mean i you know listening to you and i i i wonder maybe then i'm just still trying to discern uh which way uh you know you would like to see history move and maybe maybe you could walk me through then I am starting to imagine that maybe the ideal is the state withering away. I feel like you may have even alluded to something like that in the past. Is that is that where we're headed towards in an ideal world? No, if, no? that's not okay. My we're ideal not heading either. off. I mean, I mean, what 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 is it? You know, I it's it's because you know you keep coming back to this, and this is fine attack on shoddy to say, well, you know, we suck too. But I, I don't, I'm not that bothered by that. So the question is, is what do you want?
2: Um, I, I mean, I think we need to redistribute wealth and power in this country. Okay. and i think we need to start from there and then i guess if we if i was trying to think in terms of international relations i think we should focus on having some form of genuine redistribution within north america then keep on expanding that outwards uh, as much as it's feasible without you know causing too much havoc and chaos uh and then actually getting genuine democratic representation where it's not just the rich who have their ideals listened to
3: yeah okay well so and then the, the mechanism for the di- redistribution again just you know to just roll back to the the other part to this cooperation so we start first by reforming ourselves in the united states uh yes. we, we become you know truer to not just our founding ideals but to a set of social justice ideals that you know we no can, not we can, social
2: justice not the valence social democratic
3: social democratic fair socialists
2: so. let's just socialist. fine flat, let's just flat say flat social socialist. a more
3: socialist a more socialist direction for the country and then the, uh, does the United States then need socialist partners in other countries to do cooperation or does socialism also arise in partner countries to then other rich countries? Well, now we're socialist? talking, well, no, I mean, I'm talking
2: on predictable scales of time. Fa- so fine, so but, I, I, I do think that, um, if America, for example, uh, Shadi, you mentioned earlier that like America was only bad to Latin America during the cold war. If it stopped doing things like helping fund the drug war. Um, and things like that, it would free up other countries in Latin America to pursue their own policies. And we'll have to re- react to that, respond to that, see how it develops. But in, in my ideal world, you'd see more redistribution of wealth and power throughout the entire Western hemisphere. Um, I, I am a political citizen of the United States, so I can't speak for other countries. We do live in a world of nation states. I, I, I am aware of that. And then hopefully, if humanity moves in what i would consider a positive direction will be able to stave off you know catastrophic climate change um what i actually think is going to happen <laughs> you know marx has a great quote I, I think it's in the manifesto where he says we'll, we'll either you know become socialist and communist or we'll, we'll we'll suffer the mutual ruin of the contending classes i think the mutual ruin is more likely than not at this point but i gotta strive for the better world
1: okay okay so just uh- so first of all i i did not i don't think i said that america stopped doing bad things (laughs) in latin america and only did them in the cold war i would say i think what i was trying to get at is we were much worse during the cold war I don't know. Drug war is pretty bad. (laughs) Okay, but I mean, just in terms of overthrowing regimes, at least we did help some democratic transitions in places like Peru, Argentina, Brazil. In the mid to late '80s, we got you know we got around to putting pressure on some of our former authoritarian allies. We've also did some of that in Asia with South Korea and the Philippines. I, I just mean that there was a trajectory where, if we look at a continuum. we did improve in terms of putting pressure on authoritarian regimes, but we don't have to get into all the specifics. I just want to clarify like what I meant by that, but the more relevant, so. Well, specifics well, aren't so, as
2: clean as that. Let me just, as a historian, underline that. It was a lot of like doing what was perceived in US capitalist interests in all of those cases. It was not so out bad? Of the goodness okay. of our heart. Okay, but what's well, so bad because about- capitalism destroyed the world. Cap- Americans consume what what is it twenty five percent of world energy? That's why capitalism's bad because it's cooked the planet. because we don't have a we don't have any sort of natural relationship to our environment in any way, shape or form. The whole thing of permanent growth is actually literally cooking the planet. uh we don't distribute resources efficiently or effectively in this country whatsoever instead of giving people health care, private capital, and we work. I mean capitalism is is, is from my perspective, n- not very good for the world.
1: Okay, but if we end up supporting democracy because it aligns with capitalist interest, like it's a band I,
2: I mean, it's a band-aid on a cancer.
1: Okay, but I'm if if people end up doing the right thing, i.e., what I think is in in our in our <laughs> what I consider to be morally compelling and morally just and they, they get there because some other things are influencing them and they're like, "Oh, well, this is actually good for whatever." I mean, that that's still better than the alternative of supporting authoritarian regimes if i had to choose between I don't capitalists, think it matters,
2: cuz we're cooking w- the planet i mean like it doesn't w- matter really
1: but it, it matters it for the people really who live matter. under these regimes if there's if there's greater political openness and and more demo- and greater democratization that's helpful for the people who actually live in those countries because they don't have to worry about waking up to a dawn raid by the police because they said something wrong i mean that seems like yes, pretty agreed. tangible I, I, I,
2: Yes, I agree that 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 is helpful. But then again, if if it comes at the expansion of these American business interests that are just extracting all these resources to be converted into energy that cooks the planet, it's helpful in the short term. But ultimately, if we're talking about these larger issues, it doesn't really affect them. But yes, I, I, I think it's horrible. I think that sort of authoritarianism is absolutely horrible. I'm an intellectual. I love freedom of speech.
0: Become a paying subscriber to hear Shoddy and Danny really go at it over the role of democracy in foreign policy, and hear me press Danny about what he really is trying to achieve. If you're not a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to the whole thing in one file.